Well, we've been looking the last two weeks at passages that relate within the, the body of Christ. Um, and we're, we're, uh, we looked at about four different places. Uh, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, last Sunday morning and Sunday night. And, and we have a blessed body of believers here, free from the majority of the things that we have been, we've even been preaching about. But, but we don't want to be complacent in our walk and we don't want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. So we're saying we're, we're salting our hearts, if you will, with, uh, with the truth. Because we all know that, that while we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, we live in unredeemed flesh. And, and last week we started, I think, with the illustration that, that, uh, it's possible for people to let the tiger out of the cage. The little illustration of the, the young man that raised a tiger cub from a youth and, and his friend said, uh, began to say it was tame. Well, it's very easy for a Christian to, to get lulled to sleep and believe that their flesh is actually like a tame little pussycat, when in reality it is a ferocious tiger. Uh, on top of that, not only if you didn't have to, we didn't have to battle with the unredeemed flesh, we have, we have the world and the devil. We have a system that's constantly trying to conform us to its mold. And, and, and that doesn't just mean in behaviors, but primarily it's in thinking. We give a, 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 a worldview a test, if you will, to to students at uh, at TCS whenever they enter in some of the classes to see, to help them see, really, how much the world has influenced their thinking. And these are questions that aren't just, you know, right or wrong answers or Bible verses that you've memorized. These are questions that you actually have to think. You actually have to know Truth. It has to be a, a part of the way you view the world, the way you view life, the way you view, uh, sexuality, the way you view all of these things, and then, then based upon the way you answer the question, then, then they tell you. And it's usually surprising to a number of students. Sometimes it's surprising to the teachers. Sometimes it's surprising to the parents at how easy it is for anti-Christian, anti-Christ, worldly thinking to creep in. And that's the conforming process that's taking place. And then on top of that, we have an, ad, we have an adversary. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? Amen? And we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Praise God. But we have an adversary. And that adversary is real. And he's not the guy in the little red suit with the horns and the pitchfork like you see at Halloween. It shows up at your house and says, Hi, I'm the devil. Let me in and let me ruin your life, your marriage, your thinking, whatever else. He is, he's subtle. He's slippery. He's like a snake. He presents himself like an angel of light. And at times his work is imperceptible. And so the Bible tells us not to fear him, not to worship him. But the Bible tells us to be, be aware, to take up a defensive position, to know, not to be ignorant of his devices. So that's the process that we're going through in looking at some specific passages. And Lord willing, whenever we're, we're done, we're going to head back to uh, the end of Genesis. We have one more message in Genesis, and then we go to Exodus and see the redemptive plan of God and how that is unfolding in the, uh, in the Old Testament. We've observed some examples of how leaders in Acts 6 responded to growth problems within the church. We've we looked at the responsibilities that we have, you have, one to another, and members correcting each other. 
Last week we looked at God's appeal for unity within the body, and then and then Sunday night, if you missed Sunday night, I encourage you to go back and get uh, Pastor Nathan's message where he warned us about the influence of consumerism. He actually gave us an application of the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Romans 12. He talked to us about having 30 different kinds of milk to choose from at the grocery store can imperceptibly train us to think the same way about church. We can begin to think that our faith should cater to us in the same way that 2% organic soy almond milk made in Oregon accommodates our unique taste. And what happens is we can lose the fact, we can, we, we can lose the, the big picture that, that Christianity is, is not about us, it's about God. It's not about our little tastes or preferences or other, otherwise. The church is not about us, it's about others not ourselves and our preferences. So this morning, while we've looked at leaders and we've looked at the responsibilities between members and we've looked at unity in the body as a whole, this morning we're going to shine the magnifying glass on our own hearts. We're going to look within this morning in, in Romans chapter 12. And we're going to take some spiritual inventory because you can have great leaders. You can, have, uh, you can know the commands of what you're supposed to do one with another. You can understand the influence of the world and you can know the theology of unity, but if your heart as an individual believer is not inflamed for the Lord Jesus Christ, if it is not spiritual, then all of those other things will fall, will fall flat. So we're going to look at one final passage and take some spiritual inventory. It was a man who had a high opinion of himself. And he stepped on one of those coin-operated scales. Have you seen those? They have them at rest stops, sometimes in the mall. He steps on a coin-operated scale, and, and it doesn't just give you your weight, it also gives you your fortune or dispenses a card. So he has his wife with him, and it was going to give his weight and comments about his personality, and he gets the card and he reads it, and he begins to smile, and he hands it over to his wife. And he says, here, look at this. And she took it and read aloud, You're a dynamic, born leader, handsome, and much admired by women for your personality. And then giving it a second look, she added, Hmm, I see it got your weight wrong too. (laughs) (laughs) Like the man in our story, it's easy to be misled about how spiritual of a person we are. It's easy for us to compare ourselves to other Christians, their spirituality or lack thereof. It's easy to compare ourselves to these general moral requirements. Uh, The joke that uh, used to be told on a regular basis uh, back where I'm from, when you're looking for a a, a righteousness was was defined as, I don't smoke, I don't drink. I don't smoke, I don't uh, chew, and I don't run with girls who do, okay? Very easy for your righteousness, your idea of, of what it means to be spiritual, to be boiled down to the do's and the don'ts. I don't go to the films. I don't, I don't drink. I don't do this. When in reality, those are surface things. Those are areas that clearly the Bible speaks to us about and applies principles. But when God talks about spirituality, He doesn't shine primarily on the outward. He shines on the inward. And you can't escape the all-seeing eye of God. You can't escape the Scriptures. And so that's where we're going to to go. The The great thing about the Bible is it won't flatter us with rosy fortunes or a slimmer weight reading. 
the Bible shoots straight and tells us exactly where we are, and God does that by grace. It's His grace that He tells us the truth about ourselves, isn't it? It's God's grace that He tells us that we're sinners and that we're hopeless. And it is God's grace that He tells us about what He can do in spite of that condition. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 21. We're obviously not going to cover all that this morning. We're actually going to cover verse 9 this morning. But let me give you some context since we're parachuting right down in the middle. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is probably one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament, and, and rightly so. I mean, it's the, it's the hinge in the, in the book of Romans. After talking about, about sin and talking about salvation and talking about the, the sovereignty of God, he, he comes to sanctification prior to sovereignty. He comes to this point, this hinge point, where he moves from, from theology to practice. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 is that, is that hinge. That's why you hear it over and over and over. It, it, it tells us, Paul's urging or beseeching us, as brethren, based upon all the mercies of God, that we, we give ourselves wholly to the Lord. It's, it's our spiritual act of worship. It's, it's a reasonable thing to do. It's a consecrated life. You, you don't offer your things to God. You offer yourself to God. And then Paul talks about these mercies of God not being conformed to the world tells us to emulate the things of Christ and renewing the mind. And in order in doing that, we'll prove what is the what is the, the good and acceptable will of God in, in verse two. In verse three he tells us it's all a product of grace. Look at verse three. Paul says, I say, for through grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Not just grace given to him, but to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And there's our illustration of the of the man. We are to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Think rightly about about God. Think rightly about yourselves. And then he he talks about the spiritual abilities that that you now possess. Those those come to you by by grace. He echoes what is in First Corinthians twelve. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly bestowed by a merciful Creator. You don't choose your spiritual gift, God does. And then he goes on here in this list, he gives a list of some spiritual gifts in verses 6 through 8. He reminds them that those gifts are by grace and given for others. And then in verses 9 through 21, our passage, he gives this portfolio of, of spiritual traits we're going to use to examine our, our own hearts. This is what should accompany the Christian life. I, I was looking at a number of different, uh, different Bibles just in study this past week. I'd have one at the office, one at the house, and, and, and they would be different study Bibles. And every single one, there was about four of them, every single one gave the same heading. It's not inspired, but it's in the study Bible. Behave like a Christian or marks of the Christian life, or something to do with these are the things that should be in your life if you're a Christian. That's what he's saying. So, these aren't just hopeful qualities. 
that you should aim for, but characteristics that should be in the life of a believer. So, so as we go through this passage, I want to give you, give you some application up front. They're going to bring up a slide of, uh, of questions. And as we go through this list, because with a list, it's very easy for to just drone on and on and on. There's a bunch of stuff listed here. It's very easy to just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love without hypocrisy. I got that. Move on to the next one. And so you have to be intentional. Just like whenever you get a passage that you've heard before, you have to make sure that you, that you try to listen to it afresh and not just dismiss it out of familiarity. When you go to a list, you have to be intentional. So you have to work this morning. I'm going to preach, but you've got to work, okay? And that doesn't just mean staying awake. That means you have to think whenever we go over this list. Do I see these qualities or this quality in my life? I'd write these questions down. And whether you do it now or do it later, go back and ask these questions. How much do I emulate that statement? To what extent does it characterize me? If not, if it doesn't, it doesn't characterize me. If not, why? What do I need to pursue, remove, or be reminded of to cultivate? Cultivate it. Because it should be there. Now, I found myself going through the list, and he's going to hit us right in the mouth, right out of the gate, love without hypocrisy. And I found myself asking the Lord in my heart, Lord, this is what's supposed to be in my life as a believer. And yet this standard I find I fall short of on a regular basis. And I know that everyone else listening is going to feel the same way. Love without hypocrisy. I mean, who can hit the target of loving like God loves anyway? Much less doing it without hypocrisy. And so I began to think about, so what are the implications of that? If this is what should be in my life as a believer, what should be in the life of every believer, what do I do when I run up against some Mount Everest or mountain-seeming command? Well, I want to give you another little help before we, we go to the actual list. I don't want you to throw your hands up. Rather, I want you to press on. And, and because these are traits in the, in, in the Christian life or in new life in Christ, they're both characteristics that are produced by the Spirit. Now, follow me now. And they're also qualities that we develop. They're, they're characteristics produced by the Spirit, and they're also qualities that, that we are commanded to pursue or commanded to, to develop. I mean, you find this tension in Galatians where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and it goes through the list. Okay, he says that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's what the Spirit produces in you. It's a work of the Spirit. As we've used the example before, if you watch a tomato plant grow, if you had a time-lapse camera on a tomato plant, you would not see that tomato plant struggling and striving to, to pop out a tomato. It produces tomatoes because it's a tomato plant. And yet, you know as a gardener, you tend to the plant. And so, these things should be and will be in your life. It's something that's produced by the Spirit but then you also have other places in the Bible where there are commands, where you're commanded to pursue these things. And that's where 
your effort comes in. So these are both characteristics that you should see in your life. If you go through this list and you don't see these things characterizing your life, ask yourself whether you're a true Christian. Okay? If you see these things in your life, faint, dim, you want more of them, then pursue those qualities and develop them with the, with the Spirit's help. What I mean by characteristics and qualities, what I mean is, is if the Spirit of God dwells in you, these traits will be in you. They'll be forming in you. And to the extent that they're not, to the extent that you listen to this passage and you say, let your love be without hypocrisy, and you see that's the standard, and you're measuring, and you're going, yeah, it's there, but boy, it's about right here. Between here and... And, and the top, it's going to be attractive to you. You're going to desire to fill the rest of that up. You're going to desire to pursue that. It's going to be fueled by, by God that, that lives in you. It'll be attractive to you to, to keep going in the work. Be something that you'll find operating in your life, and where you don't, it'll strum your heart. Fill it with desire to pursue it. That's what spirit-produced sanctification looks like. The spirit produces fruit. But where fruit is lacking, this spirit yearns within us to see it. And that yearning moves us to pursue the quality, to remove any hindrances, to work at it, and to practice it. Hence our last question there in our, in our list. So it's you who pursue these, the qualities, but it's the spirit who gives you the ability and motivates you to do it. And then in the end, he gets, gets all the, the glory. That's exactly what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Work it out. Work out your salvation, your sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. For it's God who is at work in you, giving you the ability and even the desire to do of His good pleasure. It's there. So listen to the list and then ask the, the question... And what you don't find there, pursue. All right? Now, that's the introduction. Now, here Paul, in verses 9 through 21, gives us a list of grace-grounded responsibilities that mark the Christian life. Grace-grounded responsibilities that mark the Christian life. And the first thing that he gives on the list is genuine love. Genuine love should be the first grace-grounded responsibility that marks your life. Look at verse 9. There are three things stated in verse 9, but they all go together. Let your love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I found some translations said it positively and some negatively. Some of the translations said love without hypocrisy. Others, the ESV said love genuinely. Do you see that? Now look at what he says here in verse 10. He says, love or be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So in the first two verses... You have something that almost seems redundant. 
They seem similar, verses 9 and verse 10, and yet he uses two different words. He uses phileo and agapao. Brotherly love, in verse 10, is, is rooted in affection, kind affection toward other people. It's the idea of, the, of the, the warmness that you get in your heart whenever you, whenever you think about another brother and sister in Christ or, or whether it's you know uh, little girls or puppies or fishing or whatever motivates your heart. Agapao is characterized by action. And that's the word that he uses in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. The greatest virtue in the Christian life and the chief indicator of your spirituality is love. It's a word rarely used in Roman society because being unselfish, self-giving, intentionally devoted to the well-being of another was ridiculed and considered weak. I think we have that same problem, but we probably have the issue that we use this term for everything. I love the weather, I love pizza, I love my girlfriend in seventh grade, I love, I love, I love. And yet this word means much, much more than that. In a lot of ways, the same issue that the Roman culture have, we have. To love to the point of devotion, to love to the point that you, you act on behalf of another person, is considered a deficiency, not a virtue. Our world would say, yeah, uh, love them, yes, but only to a certain point and only if they're, if they're loving you back. I mean, if you love somebody that's not loving you back, then you look weak, right? <laughs> What's wrong with you? And the world surely wouldn't advocate loyalty to someone who didn't return love simply for the sake of virtue. And yet that's exactly what this, what this says will be in the life of a believer. That's seen as absurd in the world. And yet the New Testament self-giving, acting love is proclaimed as a supreme virtue. Love is more important than any skill, spiritual gift, or even capacity. A man or a woman who has love for another human being is considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says that you can give away every penny you have and even lay down your life. Give up your very life's blood, and if you have not love, it's like an empty noise. Well, that's a pretty significant statement. It's the glue that holds all other virtues together. You will find love being the capstone on lists, or like right now, it will lead. Both Old and New Testament, the two greatest commandments are, you shall love the Lord your God, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself declares that, Upon those two commandments, the rest of the law and the prophets hang. Genuine love is the mark of a true believer. And that love is to be without hypocrisy. Now, I found that interesting. And so did John Piper. Listen to what he said. Think of it. This is Piper. Think of it. Of all the things that Paul could have said that love should be, love should be great. Let love be earnest. Let love be joyful. Let love be constant. Let love be bold. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Piper asked questions that most people aren't thinking about. It's probably helpful. 
He says, let your love be without hypocrisy. It means without pretense. In other words, there's no put on with the love. It's pure. It's right. It's God's love being manifested in you and me. It's, it's not only in word, it's in action. It's easy to say that you love someone, but it's hard to fulfill those statements in action, isn't it? That's usually where we fall short. I mean, we tell each other we love each other. I tell you that I love you, and I mean that with all sincerity. But he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let you, Brian, practice what you say with, without pretense, without hypocrisy. The phrase literally means without wax. Love without, without wax. And it stems from a practice in the early Roman merchants when, when they would actually make uh, jars and they would sell them. And if a crack would appear in the jar, they'd fill it with wax, the same color of the jar, so, so the buyer would be unaware that it was cracked. People got astute to, uh, to that practice. And so they would, before they would buy the jar, they would require the merchant to put it out in the sun so the wax would melt, so they could actually see whether there was a crack in it or not. And as the wax melted away, the fissure or the crack that was in the pot would be revealed. So honest merchants would, would, would actually end up testing their wares. You would find merchants who actually set all of their dishes or all of their jars that they were selling out in the sun, and then they would mark it with sincerus. Latin for without wax. It's where we get the word sincere. He says, let your love be sincere. Let your love be without wax. Let it, let it not be covered up. Let the crack that is there. J.B. Phillips said, let us have no imitation Christian love. And why does Paul state that? This is back to Piper's question. Why does he, why does he have to state that? It's because we're much better at claiming to love someone than actually loving them. Sadly. It's much easier for me to claim that I love you, or my wife, or my children, or whoever, or my enemies, than it is to actually love them. But I know that I'm supposed to love them. And so what I find in my life is that I'll put wax over that because I don't want that crack to show and yet, under pressure or otherwise, under the sunlight, under the light of God's Word, in this case, the wax is melted away, and you can truly see how far you have to, to measure up or whether there's any love there at all. Paul states it this way because it's much, we're much better at claiming to love someone than actually loving them. We have learned the fine art of pretending at a very early point in our Christian lives. I was sitting there singing this morning, and um, I was thinking, how many people on the inside were just rejoicing and rapturing at what they were what they were saying, but didn't want to express that outwardly in raise of hands or or praise the Lord or amen or whatever it is, because they were worried about what someone else in the congregation might think about them. What a pity! What a pity! You're absolutely right. It is. We, we, we tell someone we pray for them, but we, but we don't actually do it. I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you. 
and we we mean that with with all sincerity. We're not saying, okay, I'm just going to tell this guy I'm praying for him to get him out of my hair. You're not saying that. You mean it. But our love is to be in action. It's to be without hypocrisy. It's not just to be with words. It's to be following through. We smile when someone is talking, but we aren't really listening. Yeah. We tell someone to call any time, but then their number appears on the cell phone and we cringe. You go, oh. I don't do that with any of you, okay? I really don't. But I want you thinking, oh, I'm not going to call Pastor because I'm the guy. I'll be the guy on the cell phone that he won't want to answer. That's not the case. We say positive things to a person in front of them, but, but when we're away, we speak critically. Paul talks about not being double-tongued. I mean, here it's love, and that love is without hypocrisy. And the first thing I think he, he wants us to see here is love not just words, it's action. Love is action. You know, if I would ask you, what is, just off the top of your head, who in the Bible, what character in the Bible exhibits hypocritical love? Who would, who would come to your mind? Did I hear Judas? Because that's who I think is a perfect example. He's the foremost illustration of hypocritical love. He feigned devotion to Jesus to achieve his own selfish purposes. And his hypocrisy and self-centeredness was made evident when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of, of silver. The sad thing is that when you truly love in action and sacrifice for another, it will cost you. It will cost you greatly. But that's really when a, when a believer is satisfied. A believer is satisfied when they, when they pour out their life for, for someone else in action. A believer is not satisfied when they get. It, it's like the 30 pieces of silver. Paul says a believer's love should not be like Judas. Our love should be genuine, sincere, unaffected. So, so the question, is your life a picture of loving others? I know if you're a believer, you want to love others. And I know that you, you tell other people you, you love them. But, but how far up the scale, and you, if you truly compare your life, do you think about others? Or just start there with your own thinking. I mean, in your mind, do you think of others first, or do you think of yourself first? Boy, uh, sadly... I, as much as I desire to think about about others, I'll think about others and I'll connect myself to it in, in some way. Start with your thinking. When you're in a situation where there's a competition or where there's two things that are competing, who wins? Do you think about me or do you think about, about other people? It's possible to think about others. Okay? Beyond the thinking, do you... Do you do you act? Do you give up your wants to meet someone else's needs? Can you say that your life is truly illustrates a desire to fulfill the needs of others? Yeah. Is it only when it's convenient? When you get something in return? Yeah, that's what James warns us about in James 2, the way we treat one another in the body. We're not to treat one another in the body based upon what somebody else can give you in return what their perceived value may be, you treat them based upon the way Christ treated us. I think it's a really good way to think about how to apply this. And I was just thinking, okay, 
love. Boy, that's a familiar word. And so how do I put some legs on that, you know, put some hooks in it to apply it to my life? I think it really looks like a life that looks a lot like the gospel. Do I condescend to others in word and deed or... Do I come to them? Do I meet them where they are? Or do I expect them to come up where I'm at? Aren't you glad that God didn't say, Hey, I'm up here in heaven. If you can make it up to me, I'll let you in. Aren't you glad He didn't do that? He came to us. And when He came to us, He didn't say, Okay, here's the standards, here's the rules. I'm down here. You can see me. You, I mean, And right here's my law. You keep it, and I'll take you by the hand and take you back to where I'm at. He didn't even do that, did He? He came to us. He gave us His demands to show us how deficient we were and then met His own demands. Fulfilled His own law. And then wooed us, worked in us through people, through, through, the, through other means, through the prayers of your mother, your grandmother, Theta Lewis in my case, showed us our need, showed us His great mercy, the Spirit worked in our hearts. I mean, it's truly by grace, isn't it? And that's how you love other people. You condescend. You come to where they're at. You don't say, come to me. In the midst of their ignorance, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of whatever it is, you, you woo them. You come to them. That's what Christ did. And he was the one who could justly demand that we measure up to him. He acted on our behalf. What's the verse that the guy in the end zone holds up? John 3.16. It's the verse that everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he acted, that he gave. So you see, where do I even start that process? I found this helpful illustration about action. There was a newspaper columnist and uh, a minister named George Crane and. He tells of a wife who came to his office full of hatred toward her husband. And she says, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has me. And so Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. And here was the plan. He says, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait he has. Go out of your way to be as kind and considerate and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. And with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful! Will he ever be surprised? And she went home and did it with enthusiasm, acting as if for two months she showed love and kindness and listening and giving and reinforcing and sharing. And when she didn't return, Dr. Crane called her, Are you ready now to go through the divorce? And the other end, Divorce, she exclaimed, Never! I discovered I really do love him! Her actions had changed her feelings. 
Boy, wouldn't you love to only make decisions based upon truth and not feelings? Just don't feel like it this morning. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like I love that person anymore. Well, you follow your feelings. Number one, you'll follow them straight to hell. <laughs> Number two, you'll follow them into a mess. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as often repeated deeds. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, don't waste your time bothering on whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we'll find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find you're disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Love is characterized by action. But he goes on. Look, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love is active. And love is also discriminating. Now, this is a foreign concept. Love is a foreign concept to the world, but love is discriminating as a foreign concept. Lest you be sitting there saying, what are you saying, Pastor? Just this big, you know, kumbaya mushball. We don't care about the truth. Is that where we're supposed to do it? No. He goes on and defines what he really means by Christian love. What should it look like? It is active. It's also discriminating. Abhor, literally hate what is evil. Now, here's the flip side of love. And the next two phrases bring this whole sentence together. Paul says our love must be active. It's without hypocrisy. It's without just meaningless words. But it also must be discriminating. He follows the command to love sincerely by saying, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The, the two Greek words there, cling and hate, they're participles. So when... You put it all together. Love should be sincere, abhorring evil and clinging to the good. Love without hypocrisy, love that is sincere, abhors evil and clings to good. That's what it looks like. Now, evil is the antithesis of, of holiness and, and one who loves like God hates what God hates. Now, think about how you apply this in society today. Because the Bible says that the basis of marriage ought to be the love between two human beings. And yet this verse says, hate what is evil. Call what is evil, evil, what God has already declared. And then he also talks about in the end, the clinging to the truth. I'll show you in a minute. It's foreign sounding to our ears to say, if you love, there's hate involved. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says says love is discriminating. Hating what is evil is a requirement of sincere love. As a parent, do you hate it when your child comes home heartbroken because someone was mean to them? Of course you do. You hate it whenever someone humiliates one of your friends publicly? There's righteous indignation that rises up in your heart at injustice or whatever it is. You hate it whenever a drunk driver victimizes a family or, or, or someone else. I found myself just, just not even, I never watched the, the YouTube, but just watch, seeing the picture of that, of that 
that wicked human being that called himself this Muslim radical that cut the head off of that that other uh, uh, reporter. I mean, I just I just found just I just hate everything that you stand for rises up in my heart. It has nothing to do with them being a Muslim as much as it has to do with with just the actions that came from him. How horrible that you would do that. We hate what is evil not because we're cantankerous. <laughs> we hate what is evil because evil offends God and it hurts people and relationships. Do you remember in, in Proverbs 6 where Solomon lists some things that God hates? Wow. God is love. God also hates. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to them. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. You know what the focus of this list is? It's people. Solomon tells us that God hates behaviors that destroy other people and destroy relationships. And we're to hate evil and sin because it destroys people, pushes them away from God. And if we truly love people, we must hate what is evil. And I've got to rush. I'll throw you the last one in there. How do you do that? What's the other part? Clinging to what is good. Let what's good become sticky to you. There's a book out called Sticky Church. Think good being sticky. In order to combat the evil in our lives, you've got to pursue truth. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's read at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps record of wrongs. It, listen, verse 6. Love does not delight in evil. It's a parallel. But rejoices in truth. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Did you hear verse 6? Love does not delight in evil, and but rejoices with the truth. It has a parallel there. Clinging to good is is parallel to rejoicing in the truth. How do you know what is good? What society tells you is good? What God's truth tells you is good. You cling to the truth. And so love is is active. Love is discriminating. And, and love clings to the truth. It rejoices in the truth. It accepts what is good. Holds fast to it. And practically, that means that you're back to verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you rejoice in, rejoice in truth? How do you cling to what is good? You renew your mind. You find out what God has to say about it. You read. You think the Lord's thoughts. You pursue biblical instruction. You take the truth that you learn. You... Work hard at asking yourself those questions at the message this morning. Love acts, love discriminates, and love clings to the truth. And that's the first test, mark, first examination that he gives 
within the Christian life. Let's bow together in prayer. And just do some of that evaluation. Oh, I asked people to pray for me this morning before this message. Because I so long for that to be part increasing in my life. And yet, when God shines the light of His truth upon my actions, my hearts, my thoughts, I I come up so short. So what do you do? You continually sharpen the knife of truth lest it becomes dull. Continually return to the source. Continually repent. Continually confess. Continually observe genuine love being exhibited by other believers and then imitate them. Fight against being self-absorbed. Hate the things God hates. Take great pains. Care for one another and and not so discord or disunity amongst brothers. Let your love be genuine because the Lord's love was genuine. You know how genuine it was? In spite of the fact that you and I will fail habitually, miserably at meeting that passage, His love for us never ever diminishes or changes because of Christ.